Well, good morning, brothers. I'm a little under the weather today, so if I don't stop and give you a hug after our, our lesson, just know I'm trying to preserve your health. A little uh, biological terrorist of a son brought home whatever is being passed around in the nursery. <clears throat> I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, John chapter 6. We got... If you looked ahead, we got a long way to go. We might just spend our time reading the chapter, 71 verses, um, uh, but it's chock full of beautiful theological um, treasures. If you weren't here last week, I uh, really encourage you to go back and listen to, it was either last week or the week before, I can't remember, uh, whenever Todd spoke in chapter 5, um, you will be encouraged. But if you uh, remember the text, the context of chapter 5, two things were happening in Jesus' ministry, uh, his ministry was growing hand over fist. People were really excited about who Jesus was and the things that he was doing. He was healing people. But opposition was growing too. He healed someone on the Sabbath. And so that theme of opposition, uh, that's going to become all the more prevalent as we move forward in John's gospel. But John chapter 6, and uh, we're told right at the very beginning that uh, this takes place sometime afterwards, after chapter 5. We're not sure how long. Um, but we do know this probably takes place, John chapter 6, about a year after John chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple. Around that time period, there was a Passover meal, the, uh, the season of Passover. And now we have another season of Passover. That only happens once a year. There's three of them that takes place in Jesus' ministry. And so this is probably about a year after Jesus cleansed the temple. Now in John chapter 6, again, there these 71 verses, there's some incredible things that we see. We see two signs, two wonders, and Jesus gives us the first of his seven great I am statements. Now in all of these things, Jesus is revealing incredible things about himself for a purpose to bring his readers and his followers to a point of decision. Will they believe who he is? And if they do, will they follow him as Lord and Savior? Let's go ahead and read it together. <clears throat> John chapter 6. We read, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because the signs that they saw that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. But Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, said to him, well, there's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then what, was, what were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was on the land which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they gave themselves into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. 
When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, uh, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we might believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you did not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, Nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say that I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And not anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. But truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that they may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do not take offense at this. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there's some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.
in our hearts by the power of your spirit that you would uh, work (laughs) against me and that you would open our eyes uh, that we might see Jesus, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we might believe more deeply. Uh, Speak to us, O God, and do a mighty work in our midst, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think sometimes it's important for us to remember just certain tools of Bible study. Because a lot of the times, you know, these talks can come off as sermons, but it really is Bible study. We're learning how to study the Bible together. I remember in college, um, I took uh, at Ole Miss just, you know, some easy-peasy real estate course, and the professor said there's, there's three words that you've got to remember to be a good realtor, location, location, location. You know, some of you heard that before. Seminary, uh, my professor of biblical interpretation said something very similar, that if you're going to be a good Bible student, whether vocationally or just a layperson, you have to remember three very important words, context, context, context. The point is, is that if you do not study your Bible in context, you run the risk of missing some of even the most surface level things, which of course we, in the 21st century Westerners, so far removed from the Galileans in John chapter 6, we can easily miss some of the most surface level meanings. Now, so for example, a major theme that we just read was food. It was like every other word, food and bread, food and bread. Don't you find it interesting as Westerners how little and how differently we think about food than those people back then? Um, I was reminded of that this past uh, weekend um, watching the Ole Miss-Texas A&M game. My wife and I, we have this thing. She's a big Georgia fan. I'm an Ole Miss fan. We're going to have a divided house this coming weekend. But one of our big things that we do is that we just love to cook out on Saturdays. Um, to get ready for the big game. Sometimes we invite the neighbors over, friends, but usually it's just us. She even bought me a smoker like two years ago, which, you know, she's a keeper. She bought me a smoker, okay? And so uh, we, we love to put that thing to use. And so we were thinking last Thursday, what are we going to eat for the big Ole Miss Texas A&M game? And I thought to myself, well, you know, I saw this new recipe. I'm going to make some uh, Texas Twinkies. What are Texas Twinkies? I'm glad you asked. They're giant jalapenos that you slice right down the middle. You stuff it full of smoked cream cheese, leftover brisket, and you wrap it in about two strips of bacon, put some barbecue rub on it, and smoke it for two and a half hours. Now, if you eat that, you will have heartburn for about four straight days, but it's worth it. (laughs) The point is, though, I was studying John chapter 6 as I was cooking these Texas Twinkies. (laughs) I was thinking to myself, if these original crowd, these Galileans, if they could see me doing this right now, what would they have thought? They would have looked at me like I was a monster, and not because I was eating, you know, non-kosher, you know, blessing of the new covenant is bacon, gentlemen, but they would have looked at me like I was a monster because of how flippantly I was thinking about food, this impromptu Texas Twinkie, and the vast amounts of which we ate. Back then, they didn't have, like, snacks. You know, they didn't have impromptu menus, like, hey, let's just go ahead and whip. No one had the meat sweats back then, okay? They never bloated. They had very little. All right, so it was a vast, it's a vastly different culture back then, and sometimes we can, for, we can forget that. They, they lived in a very poor agrarian society, these Galileans, these people whom Jesus was talking to. John chapter 6, by the way, is one of the only places in John's gospel that he focuses on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's usually talking to, to richer, more well-to-do people closer to Jerusalem, but these folks in Galilee were poor as dirt. If there was a, if there was a flood or a drought, They couldn't just call Kroger and ship produce from Florida. They just didn't eat. And in terms of what they did eat, really the only things on the menu was bread and fish. And they only had like one type of bread. They didn't have 50 different types of bread and cellophane wrap. Like Sarah says, go get me some bread from Kroger. I will come home with the wrong bread. Because there's like 50 kinds of bread. They had one kind of bread. And it sustained them. And without it, they died. So sometimes it's hard for us to get in their shoes, but it's important for us to get in that cultural context, also the literary context. In this passage, Jesus referred to a whole lot of important passages from the Old Testament, primarily dealing with the Exodus account and the original Passover. And as Bible students, brothers, let's just remember it's important, and good Bible or uh, uh, ESV study Bibles or NIV study Bibles will help you do this, But it's important when we're reading these texts that we get the cultural context and the literary context and bring them together so that we can see the radical things that Jesus is revealing about himself. 
and therefore the radical things that he is calling us to do. Now again, there are 71 verses here. We will not talk about every 71 of those verses, I promise you. So there's three things I want us to focus in on. There's two things that Jesus reveals about himself and one thing um, really broken up in two parts that he talks about in terms of true discipleship. What does it mean to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus, okay? First two things, the two things that he reveals about himself. If you look at verse 1 through 21, we see that Jesus is revealing that he is the greater Moses. Now again, that might not hit us, okay, but it certainly hit them back then. I was reading one commentary, and he said to try to get us in their framework, you know, imagine, you know, you have George Washington, you know, George Washington's impact on the birth of the United States is seen across the country. We've got one state named after him. Our nation's capital is named after him. You have 240 townships, 26 cities, five mountains, all bear the name of George Washington. Okay, so he's an important guy to us and Americans. But say George Washington and Billy Graham are the same guy. Not only do you have the guy who is the founder of your nation, but you also have the leader of your religion. Okay, so imagine George Washington, Billy Graham, or the Pope, or whoever else, is the same fella. Even then, we still cannot come to understand how much reverence those early Jews had for Moses. But in this passage, Jesus is showing them, and he's telling us too, that that Moses, who you have so much reverence for, he was a shadow. He was a figure. He was a type. He was a pointer to me, the greater, greater Moses. So how does he do this? Well, he does this through the signs that we see in the first half of chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water. So let's look at them as they come to us. The feeding of the 5,000, that takes place in verses 1 through 15. Uh, you know, a couple of things before we just briefly think about this sign. Um, this, next to the resurrection, is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. So the Gospel writers, you know, this must have been very important to them. Furthermore, there was a lot more than 5,000 people there that day. Um, back then, um, they would count the leader of the household. Even We even read it just a second ago, 5,000 men, right? But remember, it's the boy who brought the fish. And so they were counting, you know, the heads of the household, the families. And so how many were in a family back then? I don't know, but you could, you could rightly assume there was closer to 15 to 20,000 people that day, okay? So there's, there are a lot of folks. Now, how does that relate to Moses? Well, if you know the Exodus story, and I gave you some uh, chapters in your notes to, to go back and read the Exodus story if, you've, if you haven't read it. But the Exodus account, Moses was tasked to lead the people of Israel out of slavery across the wilderness to their new home. Roughly about two million people. So right then and there, he has a major problem in his leadership. You know, he just took them out of Israel. How in the world is he going to feed two million people? Well, as you know the story, we know the answer. God provided. Was it Moses? But God provided. He told Moses to tell the people that, that he would provide bread from heaven every morning and they would wake up and, and they would get this manna and it was delicious and they, and they would have their fill. Okay, it was, it was a, a wonderful miracle that every child in Israel knew about. Fast forward to the day of Jesus. Jesus found himself in a particular or a similar predicament, right? So 20,000 people have tracked him down. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they all believed Jesus. They were just very interested in Jesus and the things that he was saying. They saw him heal people, and they wanted more of that. They wanted to track him down, to hear him teach, and to see him do uh, amazing things. But how in the world is he going to feed 20,000 people? Now, I find this interesting. Jesus asked his disciples what he should do. And we're told Jesus knew exactly what he would do, but he, he, he asked his disciples, Philip and Andrew, what am I going to do? <laughs> and, and I love their answers. They weren't, their, their answers were not solutions. They were statements of despair. Andrew was being a little sarcastic. He goes, well, this kid's got, you know, five loaves and two fish. He's like, it was, there were statements of despair. So why did Jesus ask his disciples what should they do? I think it means, it seems to me that this miracle was not only for those very hungry people that day, but it was also for his disciples. 
so they might know exactly who he is. That he is the greater Moses, and just like God through Moses in the Old Testament, Jesus was going to provide out of nothing, out of a season of despair. And so he takes those five loaves and two fishes. He goes, let me show you what I can do with five loaves and two fishes. And he ends up feeding him. He prays, he, he thanks God for it. He, he, he blesses it. And then he feeds 20,000 people. But notice some of the language. They had their fill. Remember, these are poor people. They spent about 90,000, or I'm sorry, 90% of their income towards their food budget. Okay, so they, they, they were very rarely filled, but here they're, there's leftovers. I mean, they're satisfied, which to me is a, is a pointer. It's a shadow of what the new kingdom is, is all about, similar to the wedding feast in Cana, that, that he will provide an abundance and will bring satisfaction. But here's another interesting detail. Jesus told them to save the leftovers. Why do you think Jesus told them, hey, be sure you save all those leftovers. I don't want to lose anything. I'm sure there's a more profound theological reason, but I, but I have to believe, especially what Jesus is going to tell the church, true believers here in a little bit, that he was providing them a little nugget, a little illustration for them to look back on. That Jesus just doesn't lose what's his. Not bread, nor his disciples. He doesn't lose anything. But with this little miracle, Jesus is recapitulating the life of Moses. Jesus is telling these people, particularly his disciples, that I care about you. I will provide for you. I am the greater Moses. Now we'll jump back to verse 14 in just a moment because that's very significant. But let's think about this next sign when Jesus walks on water, verses 16 through 21. After, this sec or after rather, the first miracle, you, know, you notice that the crowd got a little handsy. And so Jesus, knowing that his hour had not yet come, he departed. And so he sent his disciples across the sea in a boat. And we're to intuit that Jesus says, I'll meet you there. Now the disciples think to themselves, okay, we got one boat. So I'm not sure how you're going to be able to, to cross this. But okay, we just saw you feed 20,000 people. We trust you. And so they go. Why did Jesus do this? Because again, he's taking another opportunity to show us, gentlemen, to show his disciples exactly who he is. Now, how does this relate to Moses? After Moses led people out of Egypt, the land of slavery, he had another problem, and it was a much bigger problem than the lack of food. The entire Egyptian army was behind him, led by a very vengeful Pharaoh that wanted nothing more than to kill Moses and all of these two million Jews. And so they were tracking the people of God down. But in front of them was the Red Sea. They're surrounded. What are they going to do? Again, God provides out of a hopeless situation. And if you remember the story, Moses himself was hopeless. <laughs> he was frightened. But what does God tell him to do? He tells him to, to lift his staff. And once he does, the sea parts. And the people of God walk on dry land to the other side with the waves of judgment falling down behind them over the Egyptians. So let's think about Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples to go across the sea. They're by themselves. And as they're going across the sea, about halfway there, a giant storm comes. And we're also to understand, too, that because of the storm, they were afraid, these gritty fishermen. It was dark outside. It very well could have been dark. It probably was dark, certainly if there was a storm there. But John loves this contrast between light and dark. This was a hopeless situation. But then what do they see? They see Jesus walking on the water as if it was dry land. In that moment, Jesus again is recapitulating the life of Moses, that he is the deliverer, that he is about to bring about a new and greater exodus, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But here's a couple of interesting things. These disciples were, of course, scared about the storm. But when they saw this divine figure on water, we're told they even got more frightened. Why did they get more frightened, I wonder? What's more powerful, a storm or the one who can calm it? <laughs> They're thinking to themselves, okay, we're not just dealing with a greater Moses here. We're dealing with God himself. 
there's allusions here to Psalm 77 and Psalm 107, which is poet, poems that are talking about how God separated and parted the Red Sea. And so there's allusions here that this is the same guy. This is God. This is the one who will calm every storm. This is the one who's in power and authority over all things. This is the one that will make every wrong right. And when you come in face to face with the true Aslan, the greater Moses, who is the Son of God, God Himself, and when you come into contact with such power and such authority, the only natural reaction is to be afraid. If you're not quaking in your boots, you haven't realized who it is you're dealing with. I mean, just think about the, the saints of old. You have Isaiah in Isaiah 6 who had a sneak peek of the pre-incarnate Christ and all of his glory. And when he saw him, what did he say? Woe is me, depart from me. Then you have the apostle John himself, the beloved disciple, who got a sneak peek of Jesus and all of his resurrected and transcendent glory. And when he saw Jesus in Revelation 1, what did this John do who wrote this gospel? He put his face in the ground. So there's this reverential fear that this is God. But here's something really cool. As soon as this Holy One of God and all of His glory and all of His power and all of His might reached out His hand in grace and said, It is I, don't be afraid. In that moment, their fear dissipated and they welcomed him gladly into the boat. Now, this is really interesting. In Mark and Matthew, they depict the same story. Verse 20, when Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid. Matthew and Mark have longer versions of what Jesus said right there. And most uh, commentators think that John pairs it down a little bit and focuses on that phrase, it is I, to prepare us for the I am statements you know, when John tells us or exactly who Jesus is, it says, don't be afraid. But in this moment, though, the disciples didn't know those I am statements. They just saw that this, that this transcendent, powerful, all authoritative God was their friend, Jesus. And their friend said, don't be afraid. And I find that remarkable, brothers, because our God really is an untamed lion. But he reaches out to every single one of us in this room with his hand and grace. And he says, it is I. Don't be afraid. All right, so Jesus, he is the greater Moses. Now, if you look at verse 14, it seems that the greater crowd were starting to understand this. They were putting pieces together of what Jesus was showing, right? They even quote uh, Moses himself in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses prophesied about the greater prophet to come when he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And the Lord will put his words in his mouth and he shall speak all the Lord has commanded. That's what the crowd said after Jesus fed the 5,000. So what that tells us is, is when they saw Jesus perform this incredible miracle, pieces of the puzzle will start to come into place. It's like, oh, wow, holy cow, this is the one that, that Moses was promising us. They were starting to figure out who Jesus was. That wasn't the problem. The problem was how they applied it, right? Because they were approaching Jesus very strangely, as you see in verse 15. In verse 15, they were approaching Jesus as if he was a puppet king. And they were thinking to themselves, you know what? We hate the Romans, and, and this is the greater Moses. And, and Moses, is, if you remember, guys, they, they delivered our ancestors from Egypt, and, and this is the greater Moses, and he's going to deliver us from the Romans, and, and we hate the Romans, so let's get this little boy from Nazareth, this, this young man, and put a crown on him, and we'll march him right up into the city of Rome, and, and we're, we're, we're smooth sailing. Let's get this party started. But Jesus, Jesus knew what was in their heart, so, so he departed. Because he knew what, what was going on with them. They thought their greatest problem was slavery to the Romans. They did not quite yet understand their greatest problem was slavery to sin and death. They wanted to put a crown of gold on Jesus, just like the evil one wanted to do in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation in the desert to get Jesus to circumvent the cross. But Jesus says, no, for our sakes, he, he, for, he forsakes a crown of gold for a crown of thorns. It wasn't his time yet. Yeah, Moses had a great victory, but it will pale in comparison 
to the even greater victory Jesus will accomplish for his people on the hill of Calvary. That is where the great new exodus takes place, by the way, which we'll get to in just a moment. So Jesus departs. Now, there is an application there, I think. Brothers, we got to be careful how we approach Jesus. These guys approached Jesus. They, they, they had a pretty good clue of who Jesus was at this point. Not everything, but a pretty good clue. But they approached Jesus not as someone to follow, like a king, but as someone they could control as a means to an end. And we got to be careful. Are we following Jesus just for the stuff we want him to do in our lives? Or are we following him out of submission? That he is king. Because if we're following him just so we can get all the things that he can do in our life, we're no better than those early crowds who just wanted a Moses in their life to make their lives better. Not, they weren't seeking the greater Moses. And so what we learn in the first half, the only way to approach Jesus is to lay down our expectations, to lay down our requirements of Jesus and just submit to him which of course we can do because he's the one that says, the Holy One of God, don't be afraid, it is I. He is the greater Moses. Secondly, he reveals to us that he is the bread of life. And this is the big gist of this passage, 40 verses, 25 through 65. If you look at verse 22 through 24, this is a transition statement. In 22 through 24, after Jesus and his disciples had gone across the sea, everybody was clamoring to get more of Jesus. They were actually seeking Jesus high and low. <laughs> okay? They were really going after him. But as we know and just heard and for other additional reasons, they were searching after Jesus for all of the wrong reasons. And so Jesus takes this as an opportunity <clears throat> to lay down some truth. One, he wants us to know what is true of the crowds. Secondly, what is true of him, Jesus. And thirdly, what is true of the church. First and foremost, what is true of the crowd? We see this in 26 through 29. And this is kind of a warning. I like what Bruce Milne says. He is the author of the commentary that we suggested to you. He says in this little passage, uh, Jesus is confronting the crowd for being a bunch of materialists. They were just focused on the here and now. They were certainly moved by Jesus, but they were not moved in their heart. They were moved by having full stomachs. And they just wanted more of that, which again was kind of understandable. Let's not give them too big of a hard time. Remember, they were poor. And Jesus just saved them a ton of money, the feast that they just enjoyed. And it was delicious food. This was miracle bread, okay? Not wonder bread, miracle bread. I mean, this was awesome, and they wanted more of it. We can understand that. But they were so focused on the here and now. They were so focused on these blessings. They were missing the greater spiritual blessing that Jesus was offering in himself. And brothers, we know that we can fall into that same boat. These amazing things in which Jesus has given us and blessed us with, we can be so focused on those things, we miss the greater point. The ultimate blessing that Jesus offers in himself. So Jesus challenges them. He says in verse 27, guys, don't work, or in other words, don't strive. Don't make your life about food that perishes but make your life about strive for food that endures to eternal life. Which, by the way, the Son of Man, me, <laughs> is going to give to you. I love how Jesus just, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man, and he couldn't be more clear. You know, he wasn't hiding it. He's, guy, I'm the Son of Man, and I'm going to offer you something. And he's referring to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 55, which is about the Son of Man is what God says of himself. He says, why do you labor, strive for those things which do not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. What is this rich food? Well, he says, incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. And so Jesus takes that illusion and he applies it to himself. And he goes, guys, how thick can you be? These things cannot satisfy you. You know, whether it's food or whatever else it is that you find very, very important in this life, and they may be good things. Food's a good thing. It's an important thing. But it cannot give you life. He's essentially taking a page out of C.S. Lewis's playbook. Or rather, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote it, took a page out of 
Jesus's playbook, but when Jesus is basically saying, guys, why are you settling for mud pies when what I am offering you is a vacation by the sea? He said, do you, do you know who I am? I am the son of man. All, all the promises that you're forefathers and your ancestors have hoped in. I am the fulfillment of that. And all, and all the blessings that you really desire and really, and really, really need, I'm going to give that to you. And you're worried about what you're going to eat? Why are you messing around with mud pies? Brothers, so many of our friends are clamoring for stuff that's nothing more than mud pies. And we are too. Sometimes we do that. We get so fixated on mud pies, we miss the vacation by the sea that Jesus Christ offers us in himself. He says, don't waste your time with things that can't satisfy you. Come to me. So after that, they uh, challenged Jesus. They challenged Jesus. They they should have picked up those overtones from Isaiah, but they're, again, thick because they're, they're focused on the here and now. And I said, okay, Jesus, you said not to work for that food. Um, So this food that you're offering sounds pretty good. How do we work for that? How do we earn that food? And Jesus' response to that, brothers, is one of the greatest statements of the good news of the gospel that we have in John chapter 6. This is what Jesus says. He goes, you want to know what you do? You want to know how you get this life that I'm offering you? Just believe me. You don't got to do nothing else. Just believe in the one who sent me. Believe that I am the promised one. Believe that I am the Messiah. Could it really be that easy? The whole Bible tells us it is. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, for by grace we've been saved through faith, not by works. And so Jesus is just laying it on a platter for the crowds. But again, they ignore Jesus because their hearts were hard. How can we earn this? Now, we know their hearts were hard, right? Because of how they challenged Jesus. They questioned Jesus. Right after Jesus gave that amazing invitation, they, they kind of got mad at Jesus. They, they said, believe in you. Believe in you? So you're saying that you're the Messiah? If you want us to believe in you, you do something great. You know, Moses provided manna. Why don't you do something like that? Notice the change there. They, they were, you know, a couple of verses before, They identified Jesus as the prophet to come. But something changed. Here, they're saying, you're from Nazareth. How could you be the prophet to come? What changed there? I think Jesus exposed their pride. You want us to believe in you? Listen, all we need is someone to meet our needs and to wipe out the Romans. And you're talking about all this spiritual stuff. We don't need you. If you really are who you say you are, why don't you you demonstrate something for us? Jesus exposed their pride and the pride of man. We want someone to to make our lives better, but we don't need someone to save us. We, We got that. That's how the early crowds approached Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, had already demonstrated who he was very powerfully, so he takes this as an opportunity to say what is true of himself. First off, he says, guys, you got it all wrong. My father is the one who provides You missed the whole story about manna. If you think Moses was the one that was, Moses is not the source of blessing. My father is. He is the one that provided in a desperate situation. He is the one that you owe all of your thanks to. Whatever you got is because of him. Furthermore, the one who provides for you is present among you and his provision is going to give you life, life eternal, life to the whole world. And they said, okay, Jesus, well, what is this provision? Secondly, Jesus says, I am the provision. I mean, how could you not get that? My father is the provider and I am the provision. I am the bread of life is what Jesus says. Now, when Jesus gives this first I am statement, there are three things that are wrapped up in it that would have blown their minds. First off, we have that I am construction, which echoes Exodus chapter three, verse 14, when God reveals his covenant name to Moses in the bush and he says, I am. All right, so the first part of I am the bread of life, Jesus is saying, hey, I am God. I am Yahweh. And this is what, like, this is what Yahweh's like. I am the bread of life. 
So Jesus is saying, not only am I God, but as, as the Son of God, I am their provision. And furthermore, as the provision, I am all satisfying. Because notice what Jesus says. He goes, you guys are clamoring for this manna from heaven. You're so worried about all that. Did you know that your ancestors still died? I mean, why would you want that? When I'm offering something infinitely greater, infinitely better, eternally lasting, soul Soul satisfying. That's what Jesus is offering in himself. Why would you go to any other place? Why would you go to money? Why would you put all of your hope in things of this world that could not possibly satisfy you? Okay, Jesus, well, how do we receive this life? He tells us in verses 52 through 59. It's a very strange section of this uh, chapter if you read ahead or if you remember when I read it. A lot of folks think that Jesus is talking about communion here. I mean, there's a lot of symbology. But most of the commentators that you would read, that I would read, um, say that he's not talking about communion. Rather, he's using Passover feast as a metaphor to explain what it means to actually believe in him. Because that's how we receive the life of Jesus. Remember, it's simple. We just believe in him. Okay, so you remember the original Passover event. God told his people to sacrifice a lamb, to get blood from that lamb, put it on their doorpost, then to eat that sacrifice with the heart of thanksgiving. And as they do, under the, the protection of that blood that was wiped over their doorpost in faith, judgment would pass over them. Okay, what Jesus is saying, he's making an allusion to that, just as John the Baptist did in John chapter 1, verse 28, 29. Jesus is saying, I am that lamb. This is how you receive this life. You have to believe who I am. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the greater Exodus event. This is how I'm going to deliver you from the slavery of sin and death. I'm going to die for you. He says, eat me, drink me. <laughs> and, and these jokers thought he was talking about cannibalism. But when he says, eat me, drink me, as St. Augustine says, that is basically Jesus saying, believe in me. And how do we know that? Because when you, you can't eat anything in half measures, you can't kind of eat something. You, you get a piece of food and you put it in your mouth and you swallow it, right? Because you trust one, it's not poisonous and it's gonna be good for you, it's gonna sustain you. You can't eat anything in half measures. If you eat something, you're trusting in it. That's what St. Augustine says. And so right here, Jesus is saying, this, this, is, this is how you receive my life. You stake your life in me. You believe in me so, as strongly as your ancestors believed in that blood that was wiped over their doorpost. You put all of your hope in me that, without, with, with that, that life without me, you're dead, is what Jesus is saying. Eat me. Take me in. Believe me. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I like how Tim Keller summarizes this whole thing. He says, this is what Jesus is teaching in these first 60 some odd verses. He is saying to the crowds, but particularly to his disciples, that I am the greater Moses, which means I am God. I am the greater Moses. I will provide for you. I am the promised prophet. I am the Messiah. And I will lead you out of slavery, but not the slavery that you think, not the slavery of Pharaoh, not the slavery of Caesar, but the slavery of Satan, sin, and death. And how am I going to lead you out of that? I'm going to lead you out of that by dying for you just like a lamb. The provision that you're in desperate need for is me, my body, my flesh, my blood. Believe in me and you will have eternal life, eternal joy, eternal satisfaction. Not only filled stomachs, which we very much will have in the new heavens and the new earth because he provides an abundance, but more importantly, filled hearts and filled souls. But we must believe is what Jesus says. Stake your life in him. Now, of course, most of them don't believe. And so in the last remaining verses, Jesus turns his attention from the greater crowd and speaks sweetly and tenderly to those who would believe. And he says two incredible things for those who are his true disciples. Great assurances to men like us. First off, in verses 36 through 40, he says those who really believe are eternally secure. The Bible is never shy of describing the human responsibility part of salvation. 
that we do have to grab a hold of the promises of the gospel by faith. But the Bible is also not shy about God's sovereignty over all of it. It holds human responsibility and divine sovereignty and mystery union, and we must too. Jesus does throughout the majority of John chapter 6, but notice what he says here. It's unbelievable. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me. Maybe these disciples were worried they would be like these would-be disciples who departed from Jesus. But this is what Jesus says. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose not one. Do you know what that means if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right now? Do you know what it means if you don't believe in Jesus right now, but you feel the stirring of the Spirit in your heart, and one day you do come to know Jesus? But do you know what it means if you're a Christian? It means that you had nothing to do with that. It was all according to the grace of God. What's being described here is that the God who conforms everything to the will of his own purposes set his love before, on you before the foundation of the world. And he promised you before atoms were formed, he promised you for his son. And his son's mission was to track you down, to seek you out, to find you, and to save you, and to preserve you. Just think about how great that is. For those of us who are small in faith, who might be worried that, oh, I'm losing my grip on Jesus. You can trust that Jesus will never, ever lose his grip on you because he says, I will lose not one. Incredible assurance. Second assurance, we have an incredible destiny. Jesus has already been describing everlasting life in verses 41 through 51. He says what kind of what that means. <laughs> and this is what he says. On the last day, I will raise you up. He says that like 15 different times to make sure that we get it. Eternal life will be raised up. You know what that means is? Our eternal destiny is the conquest of death itself. That just as Jesus Christ rose up in glory, those of us who are united to him by faith, will one day raise up in glory too. What Jesus is doing in a bunch of these verses, particularly 41 through 51, is he's inviting us to imagine what heaven will be like. That, that we will be raised up. He says it over and over and over again. He wants us to sit down and imagine what 10,000 years from now will be like. I preached on 1 John chapter 3 this past Sunday, and he says what it will be like in those first three verses of chapter 3. He says, one, we shall be like Jesus. 10,000 years from now, bright shining as the sun, you will be, you're not going to be Jesus. Jesus is unique, the son of God, but we will be like Jesus. You will be a little Christ. You will be like him physically. Philippians chapter three, verse 21, no more cancer, no more illness, no more dementia, no more of any of the things that we dread. You will have a body that is fit for heaven, crowned with glory and robed in righteousness. You'll be like him physically, but you'll also be like him spiritually, Romans 8. You'll be conformed to his image, which means no more sin, no more desire to sin, no more guilt, no more shame. You will be a little Christ. And if you remember what C.S. Lewis said, he said that if we could have a snapshot of what the saints would be like, like if the heavens just opened and we saw the saints, we'd be tempted to worship them because that's how glorious they'll be. And I cannot wait to see you, my brothers in heaven. But John says that is, that is nothing compared to this. We shall see Jesus just as he is in all of his splendid glory, resurrected splendor and majesty. We will see him and we will have unbridled fellowship with Christ himself. Can you imagine that? That's what it means to be satisfied. And that's what he promises to each of us as his people. Now again, a lot of folks didn't believe that. And they left Jesus. Would-be disciples left Jesus. I don't know why. Their hearts were hard. Um, they didn't feel like they needed a savior. They were too engrossed and whatever their bread was. Either way, they left. 
And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? Why did Jesus ask that? He, he knows who the Father has given him. He knew exactly what they would say. So he didn't ask that at the very end to satisfy his own curiosity. He did it so their curiosity might be satisfied. John, he loves having spiritual tests, tests of true belief. And this is kind of a test for them. And this was a, an opportunity for them to actually proclaim and confess what they believed. All these things they've been feeling in their heart and thinking in their mind now is a point of decision to where they would actually verbalize it. And they thought to themselves, holy cow, I really do believe this. I, I mean, I thought I believed it, but I really do believe it. Because if I didn't believe it, I wouldn't do this crazy thing I'm about to do. Jesus says, guys, you know who I am. I've revealed myself to you. So are you going to stay or are you going to go? And poor Peter, wonderful Peter, I love Peter. This is what he said. Where am I going to go? You're the one with eternal life. I've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where, where in the world am I going to go? That is him saying, I am done looking for the bread loaves of this life. You're the only bread of life. Where else am I going to go? There's nowhere to go. You're the one that has eternal life. Now, in that beautiful confession, we learn two things, I think, about true discipleship. Brothers, we have to know who Jesus is. Not the Jesus of our own making. Not like the crowd. We have to know who Jesus reveals himself to be. And praise God, he reveals who he is exactly to us. He, he is the greater Moses. He is the bread of life. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is Lord and Savior. C.S. Lewis is trilemma. Jesus is either a lunatic, a heretic, or he is the real deal. We have to believe it, that he is the real deal. And we have very good reason to, these eyewitnesses we have in these four Gospels. But it's not just about knowing. It's actually putting faith in it, acting upon that knowledge, just like Peter does here. We repent and we follow. I am done putting all of my hope in having the perfect family, having a good job in this money or whatever it is. I'm done putting my hope in those things. There is no life in those things. Where else am I going to go but you, the Lord Jesus Christ, who have the words of eternal life? It's faith. How much faith? I love what my friend H.B. Charles says. He says, just a little bit and all you got. Which is encouraging to me because I'm often like Peter. I have weak and small faith sometimes. But brothers, what matters is not what matters is not the size of your faith. What matters is the object of it. Look to Christ, the one who says, well, even when your faith is weak, I will never let you go, but I will raise you up on the last day. Praise be the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the provision of your Son, whom you give to us in grace. We pray, Father, that you would teach us to rest more deeply in him, that you would build us in faith, and that you would give us the courage to lead our friends and to lead our brothers to the one who is the bread of life. We pray in Christ's name. <clears throat> Amen.